Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is The Norman Invasion Part 7, The Second Siege of Dublin. This episode takes us back to what was one of the greatest sieges in Irish history, when the Normans, led by Strongbow, were trapped in Dublin by a massive Gaelic army through the summer of 1171. The fallout from this siege was immense, Ireland's future hung in the balance. Also, at the end of this episode, there's a really exciting announcement. While I will explain it all then, there's one web address you're going to want to remember. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash black death. But more about that later. Now, let's turn back the clock to 1171. Strongbow's first winter in Ireland can't have been an easy one for him or his followers. After their successful conquest of Dublin and raids into Meath in late 1170, they had set up winter quarters in the port of Waterford on the south coast, the first town they had conquered after landing in Ireland. Despite their successes, there was no escaping the fact they were far from home, having left their kith and kin back in South Wales to come to what was a strange land for many of them. Indeed, for decades to come, parts of Ireland would still remain a mysterious, exotic and dangerous world for them. When Gerald of Wales, the Norman chronicler, wrote a detailed account of Ireland, he repeated stories of strange beasts, fierce peoples and even a talking wolf. While such stories seem fanciful to us today, around campfires in 1171, in the highly superstitious world of medieval Ireland, they no doubt unsettled the Norman mercenaries. Myths aside, real-life events were not exactly comforting either. In 1171, the Normans no doubt heard rumours of how Tiernan O'Rourke, the King of Breffney, had raided a monastery near modern-day Virginia in Cavan. There he had burned to death men, women and children who had taken refuge in a tower in the monastery. Tiernan, a staunch ally of Rory O'Connor, Ireland's most powerful king, would be a man these Normans would soon have to face in battle. And this clearly illustrated he could match their brutality 
massacre for massacre. Aside from unnerving stories, there were other reasons to pine for home. Strongbow's winter quarters at Waterford, one of Ireland's biggest towns, must have seemed somewhat lacking to the Norman lord. He had been born and grown up in the massive castle at Strigol, a huge fortification that perched on cliffs high above the River Wye in Wales. Even today, this massive fortress, called Chepstow Castle, is an impressive if ruinous hulk. If you want to see pictures of it, you can find them on my blog, irishhistorypodcast.ie. Back in the 12th century, though, as the wind howled around the streets of medieval Waterford, there was nothing in Ireland that could compare to this castle. No doubt as he huddled around fires in the dark, depressing wintry evenings of January and February 1171, surrounded by strange languages and customs, Strongbow frequently let his mind wander back to South Wales, the Forest of Dean and the world he had grown up in. All that said, while Ireland did not have massive fortifications like Strigol, it did offer Strongbow and many of those who had travelled with him the chance of glory and wealth, something they could never hope to find at home. Having picked the wrong side in a civil war way back in the 1140s, Strongbow was more or less shunned by his king, Henry II, while many others who came with him to Ireland also, for one reason or another, had limited hopes of advancement back home. In this context, the battles looming ahead in 1171, which would decide the Normans' future in Ireland, were immensely important. In their campaigns of 1170 in Ireland, the Normans had taken the towns of Dublin, Waterford and Wexford relatively easily, but they had still yet to face Roy O'Connor, Ireland's most powerful king, in open battle. When they did, the outcome would be decisive. If the Normans defeated Rory, they would be the masters of their own fate in Ireland. Having originally come to Ireland as mercenaries to fight for Dermot MacMurrah, the King of Leinster, it was clear the Normans increasingly had their own ambitions of conquest, and it was Rory who was their biggest obstacle. While the inevitable conflict with Rory would take place later in the year, the early months of 1171 were taken up with talk rather than war. But nevertheless, this talking had massive consequences, both good and bad, for the Normans. Early in 1171, the leaders of the Irish Church gathered in council in Armagh. High on the agenda was the presence of Strongbow and the Normans in Ireland. This was a decisive meeting. If the Church condemned Strongbow, this would seriously undermine his legitimacy. No doubt when he heard of the meeting, he quickly realised the potential for a disastrous outcome. He certainly could not have anticipated the actual result. According to Gerald of Wales, the Norman chronicler, the church leaders, far from condemning the Normans, proclaimed that their presence in Ireland was God's punishment due to, and I quote, the sins of the Irish people. While this seems incredulous to us in the 21st century, it was not completely surprising. The Christian church in Ireland in the 12th century was increasingly under the influence of the church in England, and reforming orders of monks who had come from the continent and established monasteries in the previous decades. While these orders were heavily patronised by the Normans, they held a pretty dim view of Ireland in general. Their greatest opinion shaper of the era, St Bernard of Clairvaux in France, described Gaelic society as uncultured barbarism and its people as beasts. 
Indeed, similar sentiments permeated through the church right up to the papacy. In 1155, a highly controversial document, known as the Lord Abilator, was issued by Pope Adrian. The original document does not exist, but as early as the 1180s, the Normans claimed that this gave Henry II papal permission to conquer Ireland. It should be noted, though, the veracity of this document is questioned by some historians. While this is something we will return to in later shows, in 1171, the Lord Abilator probably had little impact in Ireland. Ultimately, it wasn't needed. The church clearly was sympathetic to the Normans already. The fact that the ecclesiastical leaders in Ireland gave tacit support to Strongbow was a great boon. However, no sooner had he received this good news than it was offset by disastrous news from England. Strongbow's king, Henry II, had originally given him permission to travel to Ireland, but, as we saw in the last show, it was withdrawn at the last moment. Strongbow had pressed ahead anyway in defiance of his king. Now this had worried Henry, and he was fearful that soon he might face a rival Norman kingdom in Ireland, so he decided he would take decisive action. He imposed an embargo banning all ships from trading or even travelling to Ireland. Worse still, he instructed all his subjects in Ireland to return home by Easter 1172. This embargo was crippling and crucially meant Strongbow could not hope for any more knights or warriors to follow him to Ireland. This had the potential to jeopardise his entire enterprise and undermine the morale of his men. He had to try and win his king around. So he dispatched his trusted lieutenants, Maurice Fitzgerald and Raymond Le Gros, to Henry's court in the north of France to argue his case. They did have some strong points to support their cause. Henry, after all, had given permission in the first instance. As Strongbow watched the ship sail east, all his hopes rested on these two men. However, long before either Raymond or Morris would return to Ireland, events had taken a serious turn for the worse. In May 1171, Strongbow and indeed all in medieval Ireland were stunned when word of the death of the key figure in our story so far filtered out across Ireland. Dermot MacMurrah, the King of Leinster, who had originally invited the Normans to Ireland, was dead. While we don't know what he died from, his final days appeared to have been agonising, being described in the annals of the Four Masters in the following terms, he became putrid while living. There were few, though, who would have had sympathy for the dead king. And this wasn't just because he had invited the Normans to Ireland. Through his 40 years of rule, Dermot had made countless enemies and committed numerous atrocities. No doubt when word of his passing reached the west of Ireland, Rory O'Connor and his ally Tiernan O'Rourke celebrated. Tiernan in particular had despised Dermot. They had had one of the bitterest feuds stretching way back to 1152. However, personal hatreds aside, all eyes were now on what would happen next. Strongbow and his Normans had come to Ireland on Dermot's invitation, but the Norman was now in the running to succeed him as King of Leinster after he had married Dermot's daughter Aoife. Judging on most accounts, it actually seems Dermot was happy for Strongbow, his son-in-law at this stage, to succeed him. However, legally speaking, this was not permitted under Gaelic law and there were others far better placed, namely 
Murkert, Dermot's brother, and also Dermot's son, Donal. In the scramble that followed, Donal seems to have supported Strongbow's claim to succeed Dermot. Why he did this isn't certain. However, Murkert, Dermot's brother, was not so shy in coming forward and staking a claim, supported by many in the Kingdom of Leinster. It seemed that Dermot's succession would break out into open bloodshed, but then events unfolded in Dublin that completely distracted the Normans. While Strongbow was at Ferns at Dermot's funeral, word arrived that a Norse fleet of 60 ships had landed outside Dublin, led by none other than the former King of Dublin, who had been deposed by the Normans the previous year. Askel MacTurkel had returned to reclaim his throne. The question of Dermot's succession could now wait. Dublin was a far more important prize, and Strongbow set out for the town. However, he would arrive too late to have any impact on the events unfolding there. But before I go into that detail, I want to take a quick break. Thanks for taking time to download the show, folks. I really appreciate it. Now, in the last episode, I asked you what direction you would like to see the series go in. The response was great, so thanks to everyone who sent in feedback. Nearly all of you said to continue well into the 13th century, so it looks like we will be accompanying the Normans on their conquest for months to come. I would also like to thank everyone who contributed donations via my website irishhistorypodcast.ie in the last two weeks. It really means a lot to me that you feel the podcast is worth supporting in this manner. Finally, if you have any opinions or questions on the show, you can find me at Irish History on Twitter or Irish History Podcast on Facebook. And just before we get back to the 12th century, don't forget, there's that all-important announcement coming up at the end of the show. It's something you won't want to miss. In 1170, when Dublin had fallen to the Normans, Askel MacTurkel, the Hiberno-Norse king of the town, had fled to his allies in the Kingdom of the Isles. Now, the Kingdom of the Isles was a major naval power in the 12th century, based on the islands off the coast of Scotland. Askell, on leaving, had pledged to return to Dublin, and in early May, scarcely a few weeks after Dearman's death, he made good on this promise, arriving with a serious force. Not only had he brought with him men from the Isles, but he was accompanied by a detachment from Norway, led by a truly terrifying individual, a man called John the Wode, or John the Mad. Now, John the Wode was a warrior in the berserker tradition of the Vikings. Berserkers were men who worked themselves into a rage before battle, possibly using alcohol or other stimulants, and then literally going mad on the battlefield with devastating effect. Now, this fearsome army gathered to the east of Dublin outside the gate of St Mary del Dan in the modern Dame Street area of the city. Inside the walls, the Normans, led by the governor of Dublin, Milo de Cogan, were no doubt alarmed. Indeed, it wasn't just the army outside the walls they had to fear. Inside Dublin, they couldn't trust or expect any help from the population, whose loyalty lay with the Norse outside the gates. The leader of that army, MacTurkel, after all, had ruled Dublin until the previous year. Now, the governor of Dublin, the Norman Miles de Cogan, rather than allow the attackers storm the walls, instead led a sortie against this terrifying force. While details are scant, it's likely the Vikings would have erected a shield wall by locking their shields together 
to stop the Norman attack. De Cogan could not penetrate their lines and it seemed now that the Normans had finally met their match. De Cogan suffered heavy losses with Gerald of Wales telling us that one Norman knight had his hip bone cleaved away with an axe blow that cut through his armour. With little option, de Cogan now retreated back to the gates of Dublin. However, while this melee was going on, it distracted Askel MacTurkle and his army, and they failed to notice that Milo de Cogan's brother, Richard, had slipped out of Dublin through a postern gate, leading thirty mounted knights. Wheeling around behind MacTurkle's force, they smashed into the rear of the Norse army. Even though small in number, they inflicted horrific losses on Askell and his force broke and ran. In the ensuing rout, they were cut down with John the Wode, the berserker, being one of the last to fall. Askell himself was captured alive, but Milo de Cogan now surprisingly showed him mercy. MacTurkle was not to be executed, but instead ransomed. This probably wasn't a monetary decision, but perhaps an attempt to win over the hearts of Dublin's population who would have been loyal to MacTurkle and his family. Askell, however, failed to see the chance he was being given, and when he was brought before Milo de Cogan, he mocked the Norman, promising he would return with an even greater force once freed. Milo couldn't allow such insubordination, so instead of using MacTurkle to win over the hearts of the Dubliners, he used him to set an example. Askell was taken out and publicly beheaded in Dublin, a stark lesson to the Hiberno-Norse population of the town, that things had changed and there was a new master. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory.
When Strongbow eventually arrived, these events had all run their course. Askel McTurkle was dead, his head probably on a spike over one of the city gates, and Milo de Cogan was firmly in control. However, no sooner had Strongbow arrived in Dublin than what seemed to be a run of really bad luck in 1171 continued. With the bodies of McTurkle's army scarcely cold outside the walls after the previous battle, the Normans now had to prepare for an imminent siege. Rory O'Connor, the King of Connacht, Ireland's most powerful man, had long been planning an assault on Dublin and now he made his move. The previous year of 1170 had seen Rory O'Connor outwitted militarily by Dermot McMurrah and Strongbow. Rory had built a defensive line to the west of Dublin as they marched on the town, but they had simply bypassed him, taking Dublin with ease. While this was humiliating and somewhat embarrassing for Rory, he still had his army intact and in 1171 he carefully planned an assault on Dublin. Sometime, probably by late May, Rory had amassed an army and marched on the town. This force was much larger than Askel McTurkle's army, perhaps numbering in the low thousands. The scale of the attack quickly became clear when a fleet of 30 ships led by Godred a Norse leader from the Isle of Man, simultaneously arrived in Dublin Bay to blockade the town's port. Initially, inconclusive fighting took place around the town, but Rory's army successfully destroyed Dublin's crops in the surrounding territory before besieging the walled town. It was quickly obvious that this was the gravest situation Strongbow had found himself in since coming to Ireland. It was possibly the worst time he could have faced a siege. Not only had Dublin's garrison been weakened by the Norse assault a few weeks earlier, but there was no hope of aid arriving. His emissaries to Henry II, Raymond Le Gros and Maurice Fitzgerald had returned from meeting the king with disastrous news. They had met with Henry, but had received a hostile and frosty reception. Ireland was still embargoed. No help could be expected from their homeland. Worse still after being trapped in Dublin, news arrived that the only other major Norman force in Ireland, that of Robert Fitzstevens at Wexford, had also been besieged by an alliance of the inhabitants of the town and, above all, an army from Leinster led by Murtoch McMurrah, Dearman's brother and Strongbow's rival. This signified just how much things had started to unravel for the Normans since Dearman's death. Indeed, had the dead king been alive, Strongbow could probably have relied on at least some of that army now besieging Fitzstevens to come to his aid. But those days were gone and Strongbow was now holed up in Dublin with no hope of relief. Rory O'Connor had him where he wanted him and decided to play the siege safely. He turned the screw slowly but surely. He didn't assault the town but instead simply sat back and began to starve the Normans. The siege dragged on for week after week in the summer of 1171 and as it entered its second month the situation grew desperate. You can only imagine what life must have been like inside the town. Medieval Dublin was tiny by modern standards measuring 400 metres in width by about 600 metres in length. Inside its walls were not only the defending army of Normans but also the town's inhabitants who had been trapped when the siege begun. For them, these were tense times. 
There was no question about who would starve first if supplies ran out. The Normans would clearly feed themselves first in such a situation. As each day passed, the Norman defenders of Dublin were being ground down bit by bit. After about a month and a half, there was only two weeks of supplies left in Dublin. The Normans needed to make a move. The issue that forced their hand was the arrival of Donald McMurrah, Dermot's son, who slipped through the siege lines and entered the besieged town. While the rest of his clan had turned against the Normans, Donal had stayed loyal to Strongbow, but on arriving in Dublin, he carried disturbing news. Robert Fitzstevens had surrendered at Wexford and was now a prisoner. This was a sobering thought for the Normans at Dublin, and they decided they would try and negotiate with Rory, as they would inevitably have to surrender a few weeks later anyway. The terms they forwarded were ambitious. Strongbow offered to hold Leinster as a vassal of Rory's, who he would recognise as King of Ireland. On hearing the terms, Rory dismissed them out of hand, coming back with a counter-proposal. The Normans could hold on to Dublin, Waterford and Wexford, and no more, and if they didn't accept these terms straight away, an all-out attack would be launched on the town the following day. Inside Dublin, Strongbow rejected these terms, and decided he'd take his chances on the battlefield. But rather than sit back and wait for Rory's assault, he would choose the time of battle. So he gathered the forces within the city and planned a desperate last gasp attack. If ever the phrase victory or death had meaning, it was in this upcoming battle. Led by a mounted charge in the late afternoon, the Normans successfully slipped out of Dublin and were able to approach Rory's camp unhindered. Indeed, astonishingly, Rory doesn't seem to have been in any way prepared for such an attack. He himself was swimming in the River Liffey. The Normans now rode through the camp, catching the besieging army totally off guard. Tents were pulled down, creating chaos. Even though outnumbered and severely weakened by two months of siege, the Normans were able to overcome Rory's disorganised force. No doubt spurred on by adrenaline, Arising from the fact that they knew this was their only chance of survival, the battle turned into a rout. Rory O'Connor himself was very lucky to escape as his army crumbled. The Norman victory was unquestionable. Rory's host, who had only a few hours previously been on the verge of taking Dublin, now scattered back across to their homes across Ireland. Bloodied but victorious, the Normans had scored what was the most important victory since their arrival in Ireland. No doubt elated but physically wrecked from the rigours of battle and siege, Strongbow had no time to recuperate or even celebrate. While he had survived Rory's assault, his situation in Ireland had deteriorated while he was besieged in Dublin. A hundred kilometres to his south, Robert Fitzstevens was still being held prisoner in Wexford, while much of the Kingdom of Leinster was revolting against the Normans. He also faced a threat from the King of Ossory to the west of Leinster, who was a constant threat. Worse still, and little did he know it yet, but his own king, Henry II in England, had decided enough was enough, and that he himself was coming to Ireland to see what his rebellious subjects were up to. Henry, one of the most powerful men in Europe, did not travel alone. In South Wales, an army, numbering in the thousands, was amassing. What happens next will be revealed in part eight in two weeks' time. Before I finish, I want to make that announcement I mentioned at the start. 
which is pretty good news if you want to get more podcasts right after the show. I'm starting work on a new book. The working title is 1348, A Medieval Apocalypse, The Black Death in Ireland. Any of you who have listened to the early episodes of the podcast will know this is something I have long been interested in doing. But now I am finally getting the chance. The Black Death is one of the most fascinating topics in history. It poses so many interesting questions, not only in terms of history, but also in terms of basic human survival. Just think of how you would handle the chaos after a situation where one in three people died in the space of 12 months. Many people thought the end of the world had arrived. It created a really fascinating period and one of the most interesting in Irish history. Traditionally, writing a book takes months or years before you, the reader, will see or hear anything. However, I want to do this book differently. So, in the coming weeks and months, I will be releasing podcasts based on my research. In fact, there's one out already. Through these shows, I would really like to hear your feedback so you can tell me what you like or what you don't like, what you think works or doesn't work, and by this process, you'll be able to influence the direction of the book. In effect, you'll become an editor. However, these exclusive shows will not be available through iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast provider you use. They also won't be posted on my blog. The only way you can get them is to subscribe to my Black Death email list. This is really easy to do. Just go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash black death. There's more about the book there and a subscription form for the list. As I said, there's already one podcast available, so if you don't want to fall behind, subscribe now. Again, folks, just to say, the only way you can get these exclusive shows is to sign up for the list. So join me on what will be an exciting journey through the 14th century in the coming months by signing up at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash black death. The first episode, which is available now, introduces the 14th century by looking at the life of John Clinn, a man who lived through the Black Death. He's a really fascinating guy. So that address, one last time, is irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash black death. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, Sloan. Sloan.